So it was early in the ministry of Jesus. He had been performing miracles all over Capernaum, the region of Capernaum. Uh, he, was, uh, he was doing incredible things. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. And his people, the people from his hometown, heard about all these things. And so Jesus returns home. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his hometown was Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. And so they wanted him to uh, tell, you know, show the good works that he did all through the region. So he comes home. He's very early in his ministry. And he comes to the synagogue and he begins to read from Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll. And uh, very interesting, this is the first sermon that Jesus preached probably in his hometown. And so here, you know, you, you, can you imagine this? You know, Mary must have been there. His brothers and sisters must have been there, cousins, family members, friends, people that he grew up with, people that he ran around with. They're all in the synagogue saying, what is this guy going to say? This, we know this guy. What is he going to say? And he gets up and he reads the passage that we're going to look at this weekend. And uh, it, is a, it is a passage, the first part of the passage is from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. But if you'd like to follow along with me, I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So, uh, 416, and Jesus, uh, this tells the story where Jesus enters into the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah 61. And he's, it's interesting and, and striking is how he does it. Let me read that text. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been, had been bought, brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll, uh, the, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. <coughs> Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to, by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All the people spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that had come from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote a pro this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what you have heard uh, that uh, you did, that we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I say to you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel. There were many Isra uh, widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent any of them, but to the widow of Zephora in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I'm hoping that 
my message this weekend will come across a little better than Jesus. And then we don't have an angry mob at the end of it. But let's look at some of the lessons. And, and you'll find uh, I have five lessons that we can learn from this passage. Let's draw those lessons today. The first one is this. We need to grasp the mission of Jesus. What's very interesting in this passage, and I've pointed it out the last couple of weekends, is what Jesus does here is very interesting. He reads a passage, and he's quoting Isaiah 61. But he, it's, it's, it's interesting what he did read, but it's interesting what he didn't read. This is what uh, it says. Let me read it one more time. This is Isaiah 61. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stopped right there. But if you read the, the last part of verse 2, it says, And the day of vengeance of our God. Very interesting there. So Jesus basically stops and he's talking about, and remember, they describe Jesus' sermon as gracious words, words of grace. And, and so you have to understand Jesus and his mission. He came not as a judge, but as a savior. Jesus was very clear about his mission when he came here. He didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. And we're told that in John chapter 3. It says this, and you know the first part of the verse. You've heard this many, many times, I think. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoso, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus knew what his mission was. It wasn't to come as a judge and a jury. It was to come as a savior, as a servant. And so Jesus, as he reads Isaiah 61, he stops because the first part of his mission, his first coming, was captured in the first part of chapter 61, verse 2a. The last part, Jesus is going to come again, and he will rule and reign and judge the earth. But that wasn't his first mission. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. We can't remain neutral about Jesus. It's very interesting that uh, Jesus uh, is making the point, and he says, he reads the Isaiah passage, and he essentially says, today, in your hearing, this passage from Isaiah is being fulfilled by me. That's what he was saying. And, and so the, 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 his audience would know that this is speaking of this Messiah person, this this servant savior suffering servant savior this king whoever it is and jesus says, it's me it's me you've heard me speak i am the one so the first it's interesting because people have really two reactions to his sermon <clears throat> the first reaction and you know you can almost picture his his brothers and sisters and mary probably sitting down front Probably, yeah, that's my son. That's my brother. You know, we really, you know, we're go get him. You know, good job. You know, and and he said more than what we have recorded here, probably. But their first their first response was that he had his teaching was full of grace, and uh, there were other times where Jesus taught, and they said, well, he teaches with authority, he teaches with power, not like the rabbis. It kind, of, it kind of seems like he believes what he's saying and he knows what he's saying. Um, and, and so this, that's the first reaction. that he had, they, they saw that he had gracious words. That was the first reaction. But the second one was this. They questioned him. 
hey, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he just a carpenter? Who does he think he is? Now, uh, it's going to get even worse than that. But uh, Jesus is clearly claiming to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And the people are basically saying, well, he has gracious words, but come on now. He, we grew up with him. We know who he was. We, we, we changed his diaper. I don't know if they had diapers back then, what they did. But we, we were there with him. We know who he is. So that's the second lesson. We can't remain neutral about Jesus. Number three we often have ulterior motives for Jesus. So it's very interesting that people call him uh, basically, and, and it's interesting because they, they're not like responding to the message, but Jesus knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, heal yourself, physician, or do the works that you've done in the, in the region of Galilee and Capernaum and around us do the miracles there that you were doing there here with us. Why not bring a little love home? Why not heal some of the people here? Why not perform some of the miracles in your hometown? Why don't you do that? And so they had expectations for Jesus. Don't we do that? Oftentimes what we do is we want Jesus for what he can do for us. We want him to heal us. We want him to answer a prayer. We want him to help us. We want him to encourage us. We want Jesus to do something for us, generally. Now, uh, one of the things, and you, if you have your notes on the front, in the middle of the, uh, in the, as you open this up, part of the discussion this week is going to talk about four ways that we can approach God. And it's from a, a really good book called With. And a number of us have read this, and the questions kind of come out of that. But here's the, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, do you, do you want Jesus for what he can do for you, or you do, do you just want to be with him? Do you just want to be with him? Now you say, well, how do I know? Well, think about your prayers. <laughs> Oftentimes your prayers are a reflection of your relationship with God. Uh, oftentimes your prayers are, God, I need you to do this. And listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with asking God. In fact, Jesus, you, you have not because you ask not. So, of course, we have to ask. But there's a point where, our, when was the last time that you spent time and you just said, God, Jesus, I just want to be with you. I just want to adore you. I just want to love you. I just want to spend time in your presence. And so, think about that on the human level. You have relationships, human relationships, right? And some of those relationships you know when you see the person, maybe a family member or a friend, maybe somebody sitting right next to you, I don't know. But when they, when they want something, they're kind of nice to you. But other times, they don't give you the time of day. In fact, when they do call you up, when they do text you, when they do knock on your door or show up at your office, you say, okay, what do you want? I mean, that's the first thing you think of because it's kind of this one-way relationship. And then you have, hopefully, you have other relationships where you have those friendships, you have those where it's, I don't really need anything. I just want to be with you. I just want to hang out. Well, that's the question. That's the question. So, so the people are basically, they have ulterior motives. They want Jesus not for who he is, but they want Jesus for what he can do for them. The fourth lesson is we must understand the message of Jesus. 
We must understand the message. So, Jesus, the thing that really upset the people in the synagogue that day was he talked about two incidences in the Old Testament. And if you're not aware of that time period of what's going on there, you might be going, I don't understand what they got all upset about. And essentially what's happening is Jesus is making reference to uh, a really dark time in the, in the, in the history of, of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And these are really kind of dark times. And, and, and especially there's a number of years where God is just not communicating with his people. He's, he seems distant. He seems far away from his people. Except for a couple of situations. And so we hear about the prophet Elijah who came first and his protege, Elisha. And with Elijah, there was this woman and she was visited by Elijah and she was blessed by Elijah. In other words, God showed her grace. The interesting thing was she wasn't Jewish. She wasn't Hebrew. She was a Gentile. And, and, and the point was, that she, what Jesus was saying is that God was silent. Why? Because the people didn't want to listen to him. He says, well, if you don't want to listen to me, then I won't talk. I won't be there. I won't provide. You'll, you'll lose my power. You'll lose my provision. And so he pulled away from them, except for this woman, he says. And, but, you know, and his point was, God pulled away because the people didn't want to be with God. They just wanted what God would do. So God pulled away his power and provision. And there was about a three, three and a half year period where it was just God was absent, except for this Gentile woman. He showed up with her. Now, you have to understand, most of us are Gentiles and most of us don't get that. But in that day, the Gentiles were seen as outsiders. And nobody gave them the time of day. The, Jew, the Hebrew people didn't give them the time of day. They didn't want anything to do with them. So to think that God would, would show favor to a Gentile and, and deny his own people, that was beyond their comprehension. The other story is about Elisha. And Elisha is, about a, is a story about this... this uh, army man this commander who has leprosy and uh, Elisha comes and heals the man you know through God's power he gets healed and essentially what Jesus says there was a whole bunch of people that had leprosy Uh, a lot of my people a lot of the Hebrew people had leprosy but God chose to heal this this pagan and so that set him off his point Jesus point is this Here's the problem. What Jesus was saying is, you people in the synagogue are no different than the people back then. You don't want God. You don't want his presence. You don't want his power. You don't want to be obedient to him. You just want what he can do for you. You're just in it for what he can give you. You don't want to obey him. You don't want to follow him. You don't want to be obedient to, to the laws that he's given. You don't want to do that. And, and, and so in the same way that God pulled his presence away from his people during that time, so also I'm going to pull my presence away from my hometown and I'm going to go somewhere else. You can understand why they might be a little upset, disturbed, disappointed, more than disappointed. When you start to carry somebody out and you want to throw them off a cliff, disappointment left a long time ago, right? 
So they, they, they basically, the people of the synagogue thought that because they were Hebrews, they were in. They were God's special people, but Jesus is showing them that God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at a 23andMe test. Some of you know, what's 23andMe? It's a genetic test, okay? So, yeah, yeah. So essentially, what God's saying, I don't care what your genetic test says you are. You're so good, you're a Hebrew. But where's your heart? Where's your heart? And so the people were very uh, upset by that. And that brings us to the fifth point, that we should obediently respond to Jesus. We should obediently respond to Jesus. So his own people, his own... Now, can you imagine? So it starts out so good. Mary's proud. Brothers and sisters, yeah, high-fiving each other. He's knocking it out of the park. Then all of a sudden it gets dark. And it gets bad. And they're, they're beginning to... The people are beginning to murmur. And they're beginning getting mad. And Mary's going, what's going on here? What are you saying? And his brothers and sisters are going, what are you doing here? And his own people, his own hometown, his own family rejects him. Uh, this is exactly what John says as he summarized the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 1. It says this, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here's the promise though. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, nor uh, or of a, a husband's will, but uh, born of God. So the people are enraged with his words. Uh, they seek to kill him. They grab him and carry him outside the city to throw him off a cliff. And Jesus eludes them somehow. We're not told how he does it. Just says Jesus decided to leave. Now there's an important principle here. And it's, it's, it's something that you have to understand. Um, no one takes Jesus' life. Jesus is in absolute control of his life. Uh, no man, the mob was not able to kill him that day. Uh, Jesus had the power to call down legions of angels. Remember, this is Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. This is Jesus who could speak creation, as we know it, in, into existence with a word. And, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, was God. And all things were made by him. And then Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, the word God made the heavens and the earth and he speaks and it is so jesus could have called down anything that he needed but he held his tongue and he used another method to evade them and escape the point is no one takes his life he gives his life and and he said that jesus said essentially that in john chapter 10 verse 18 no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Uh, the command I received from my Father. So that's really important to understand that Jesus was in absolute control. No one took his life. The Romans didn't take his life. Pilate didn't take his life. Uh, none of the rulers took his life. He, you know, Judas, by betraying him, didn't take his life. His life, what he laid down. So I want to take the rest of the time that we have, and I talk a little bit about three important lessons for us. And I think they're quite important for us to think about. The first one is, and I don't have these in your notes, so you might want to write them down, and it might get a little crowded, but that's okay. You'll, you'll be all right. Uh, the first is a lesson of reflection. Um, can you imagine what it must have been like for his mom and his dad 
well, we don't know if his dad was alive at this point, uh, Joseph, uh, but we know that Mary was, and we know that his brothers and sisters were. And, uh, but after the words in the, in the, in the synagogue, um, they must have been stunned, they must have been confused, and they must have thought, he's out of his mind. In fact, there's another time in the Gospels, and you can write this reference down, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, where Jesus is teaching, and um, it says, literally, his mother and his brothers came to grab him because they thought he was mad, out of his mind. And it may be that it was shortly after this temple incident, or in the, in the synagogue uh, incident, that Jesus, uh, they thought, okay, we've got to do something. He's crazy. Now, think about this. This is your family. This is your hometown. This is your mother. These are your brothers and sisters. These are the people you grew up with. And they think you're nuts. Your, your neighbors think you're crazy. They're angry with you. He has basically lost any support that he had. Now, some of us might think, well, come on, he's Jesus. He's like kind of Superman, right? He doesn't, things like this don't bother him. Oh, yeah, they do. He had the full range of emotions as we do. He must have been heartbroken. Now, I think he understood the reaction of his family and the people. I think he understood it. I think he was wise enough to understand it. But still, it doesn't make it hurt any less, does it? When you say or do the right thing and you know it's going to be, people are going to reject you or people are going to be angry with you. And you, but you know you have to say it. You know you have to do it. You try to do it in a loving way. You try to do it in a way that will, that will be clarifying. It still doesn't make you feel better that they go, they, you know, when, when, they, when they leave you or they think you're crazy, it hurts you. That's why I think in Isaiah 50, 53, 33, it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. All through the scripture, we see that there were times where Jesus grieved. I think he walked away that day when they were ready to throw him off the mountain. And he was grieved. And I think he felt like he was all alone. Like there was no one in his corner. Maybe you've been there. You've been misunderstood. You've been abandoned, left alone when you most needed a friend. You feel rejection. Just remember that your Savior, Jesus Christ, experienced rejection just about every day of his life on earth. I mean, even at the end, I mean, we're coming to the, the what we call Holy Week. This is Palm This would be Palm Sunday, the Sunday uh, weekend of, before Easter. And uh, essentially, one moment the people are saying, Hail King Jesus, Hail King of the Jews. And then a few days later, they're, they're, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. His disciples have fled. His mother is, he just, he's alone. So that's the lesson of rejection. And the point is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been rejected, understand that will happen because it happened to our master, our savior. But there's also a second lesson, and that's the lesson of acceptance. Even though Jesus was rejected by his hometown and his family, he was never rejected by his father in heaven. 
In fact, he, read, he received loving affirmation a couple of times that are recorded in the scripture. So one time, and I want to just highlight these two times because I think it's important. The first time that we, one of the times that we see is where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we see that Moses is up there and Elijah is up there. And I think Moses represents the law, the Old Testament law. I think Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus is up there talking to them. And if you read that passage, he's talking about his mission, his mission of salvation. It would have been an interesting conversation. Well, a couple of the disciples are up on the mountain. Peter is up on the mountain. And uh, Peter is, you know, one of those, have you ever done this? We, you, you, it's one of those moments and you go, I don't know what to say. And probably the best thing is not to say anything. Just sit there and listen and watch. But Peter has to say something. So he says, maybe we should build some, ta- you know, ta- a tabernacle or a tent for each of you, for, for Moses and Elijah and for you, Jesus. Maybe that's what we should do. And as Peter is saying this, this is what it says. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 34. You can write it down. I'll read it to you. While he was speaking, this is Peter, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the, they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. So what we have are these words of affirmation from the Father to the Son. And so uh, another time, and this is one uh, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, you can read about that. Uh, Let let me have you turn there. Uh, It's Mark chapter 1, verses uh, 9. It says this, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So we have these couple of times where Jesus is affirmed by the Father. And, and, and here's the thing I want you to see. The Father clearly affirms his Son, saying, I am in your corner. When you need somebody... Uh, in your corner, Jesus, know that I'm there. And, and, you know, that's what we all need, don't we? We all need somebody who's in our corner. Somebody who, when everyone else walks away, everyone else thinks we're crazy, everyone else thinks that, that they just, they're done with us, they're angry with us for whatever reason, um, we need to know that when we look to the corner of our lives, there's somebody there. And Jesus, even when his disciples left him, even when his family thought he was crazy, even when his hometown rejected him, He knew there was a person. He knew the Father was in his corner. He had his back. And we need that. We need to remember that Jesus is in our corner when everyone else leaves. He remains. He will never leave us. He was abandoned so we could be accepted. So it's really important we hear that. Now, there's a couple of passages in in the Bible that talk about how God is in our corner. And And that's part of where the guide is going this weekend too. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but let me read one passage. This is uh, written to Joshua. So it's the first part of Joshua. It's Joshua 1.9. And essentially Joshua is going to take over and he's going to take the land. Moses, the leader, has passed the baton to Joshua. So General Joshua is going to take the promised land, the one that was promised, the land that was promised to Abraham. And uh, so God wants to let Joshua know 
that he's going to be with him, that he's not on his own, that God is going to be in his corner. And this is what he says. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I just want to say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God is in your corner. He hasn't left you. Everyone around you may have left you, but He's always going to be in your corner. He's never going to leave you. God has promised to be in His corner. Now, here's a New, New Testament passage. And, and this is uh, the Great Commission or the Great Mission in Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them, His disciples, and said, All authority in heaven is on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What Jesus is saying to his followers, not just to his disciples, not just to his apostles, but to every one of us who follows, every one of us who is part of this mission that he's put us on, he says, I will never leave you. I'm always going to be in your corner. Now, if you came in to worship this weekend, or if you're listening online this weekend, and you, you felt like nobody is in your corner. Nobody understands and nobody cares. I just want you to know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is in your corner, and He absolutely understands what it means to be abandoned, to be misunderstood. He gets that. He understands it. And He will never leave your corner. Here's the last lesson. Lesson of substitution. I want to make one more observation And I want to go back to the baptism of Jesus in in Mark. It's very interesting. Because what it says is this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove. Now that phrase is very interesting. And it's very well translated, I think. It says, heaven was torn apart ripped apart heaven was ripped apart so that god's voice could speak down this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased but the point i want you to see is that heaven was ripped apart so that god could do that can you imagine heaven being torn apart so god could speak those words of acceptance and affirmation to his son and what he was saying is as you go through this as you on in your earthly ministry just know that i'm always going to be in your corner that I'll never leave you, even though you're going to be betrayed, even though you're going to be misunderstood, even though there'll be threats on your life, uh, even though your own disciples will, dis- will leave you and flee because of the, the danger, I will never leave you. That word is very interesting. That heaven was split open so that God could affirm His Son. Now, the word there, the Greek word there, is schizo. Uh, you may have uh, thought of, a, there's a psychological uh, condition. Uh, it's called schizophrenia. And it used to be, very a long time ago, it used to be a person who had schizophrenia was a person, we would call it, uh, it was, it was a, a personality dis, dis, uh, disorder. Uh, and they would say he, they have a split personality. Now it's far more complex than that. And most modern psychology would, would, would frown on that characterization of schizophrenia. But that's uh, essentially what uh, that word schizo means. It means to divide, to tear apart, to be pulled apart. Um, 
But Mark uses this word schizo, this Greek word schizo, two times. He uses it at the baptism of Jesus, but he uses it one other time. It's very interesting where he, where he uses it. Uh, turn over, and I'd love you to turn there and write this verse down. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. This is the second time that he uses that word schizo. And remember the picture. The picture is heaven is ripped open, right? So that the voice of God could come down and affirm his son. Let me start reading verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. <coughs> Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put a stat on a staff and offered it it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. He said, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You want to know the Greek word for that? Schizo. It was ripped open from heaven to earth. Now what was taking place there? What was taking place there? What was that temple what was that curtain? That curtain was the dividing line between heaven and earth, between God and man, between the Jew who could go into the presence of God and the Gentile. So when God tore that curtain apart from top to bottom, what he was saying is, you're in. You're in. The temple curtain was the dividing line between heaven and earth. And when Jesus gave up his last breath, the temple curtain was torn open from heaven to earth. These two times that word is used. Once when heaven was torn open and, and the voice came, you are my beloved son, I'm in your corner. The second time that it was torn open was when the, the temple forever, forever will be done because the one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the once and for all sacrifice has been offered. Jesus breathed his last breath and the temple curtain was schizoed. It was torn from top to bottom. So why should you believe that Jesus is in your corner? Because he went the distance for you on the cross. We don't have it in Mark, but we know his last words were, it is finished. He didn't say, oh, I'm finished, I'm done, it's over. He said, it, it, my mission is over. It's finished. He was rejected so you could be accepted. He doesn't just tell us he loves us. He proves it by giving his life. He loves us in the midst of our sin, rejection, doubt. He still loves us. Now, here's what, here's what I found in my life, and, and you might find it too. You are going to be disappointed if you seek the approval of your family, your spouse, your children, your mirror, your employer, you're going to be disappointed. You'll only find true acceptance and affirmation at the foot of the cross. And Jesus provided the way to the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So if you want affirmation and acceptance, it's not going to come from your family or your work. I mean, yes, for a little bit, maybe you have good relationships. But in the end, in the end, if you want true acceptance 
and forgiveness. You have to look to your corner and see there's Jesus who says, I love you this much. It's finished. And know that the temple curtain was torn from heaven to earth so the Gentiles are in. See, the message that Jesus brought at the temple that day was Gentiles can receive the grace of God too. And thank God for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it gives us. Thank you that, that we can know that you're in our corner, that we don't deserve it. It's not a matter of whether we deserve it or not. We know, Father, that uh, even though we may be rejected by men and women, you will never reject us. You'll never turn your back on us. In fact, when you accepted us, we had turned our back on you. Your word says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I don't know what people are going through this weekend, Father. I don't know if they've been hurt, if they've been shunned, if people have turned their back on them or left them alone. I pray that they would know that they are loved. I pray that they would look to the cross and find the acceptance and the forgiveness that only you can give at the cross. So thank you, Father. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.